following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. Wow, actually got a response. You don't usually have, that doesn't usually happen. Uh, it was. Um, let me start out by just saying I'm sorry. If you are visiting this church and you came to hear the young, dynamic, solid preaching of the young pastor that's in this church. A little bit of false advertising doesn't, doesn't hurt all the time. But hey, in keeping with the spirit, I just want you to know I identify as young, dynamic, and good looking, okay? So um, deal with it. You're not judging me, are you? Okay. Um, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 46. We live in some pretty crazy times. I think most of you guys would recognize that. Uh, it seems like every morning you wake up, there's something new on the horizon that you would have never thought was even possible in our culture today and around the world. Uh, even yesterday, I was looking through some notifications that I got uh, on my iPad, and it was announcing, it was probably not the B or something, and it was announcing that there's an organization in Portland, Oregon, that took out a giant billboard that said, stop having babies. And it's this whole organization that's dedicated to convincing people that they need to stop having children. And the reasoning is because the world is so chaotic and so messed up and there's so much hurt and so much harm that why would you bring other babies into this world that you're just going to teach them to do the same thing and they're going to go off and hurt more people. So the solution is to stop having babies. And you're just like, what in the world? How do you come up with that kind of stuff? But that does seem to be an illustration of the world that we live in. If you have your Bibles, look at Psalm 46, and let's look at verse 2 to start with. And we're going to be flipping around quite a bit. We're just going to use this as a launching point for us. But verse 2 says, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Now, I believe the psalmist is speaking here after he has just in experienced probably a cataclysmic earthquake. He speaks of the mountains being thrown into the sea. And though I realize this is very poetic language and, we're not, and we should interpret it and apply it to our lives that way, I think it's very obvious that the, that the psalmist here is trying to make a point to us. Notice that in verse 2, he says that we will not fear. Now, I think for everybody... Everybody has a level where we are, will experience fear at some point, right? Some of us, it may be different. It may be different for little kids as it is for adults. Kids may get frightened over lightning and thunder and lightning or fireworks, or, and that may not uh, affect an adult. But at some point, all of us are going to feel fear at some circumstance. There is something that can cause all of us to, to be frightful and fearful. Yet the psalmist here says, we will not fear and then he goes on to explain the conditions where he will not have fear. And he says, though the earth gives way, and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if the earth is giving way under your feet, and the mountains that you're seeing are being cast into the sea, I think that's probably a justifiable reason to have some sort of fear. Would you agree with that? Yet the psalmist here says, even though those things are happening... I will not fear. He says, we will not fear. 
Even though the earth gives way and the mountains are being slid into the sea, we will not fear. And I just have to ask, how in the world can he say that? What is he talking about? How can he possibly say that he cannot have fear? And how can the psalmist confidently say that he will not fear even though the ground around him, that that which is immovable, that which is solid, that you know is solid, is now no longer solid and is moving out from underneath your feet? But the psalmist says that because of what he knows in verse 1. Notice the first word in verse 2 says, therefore. So the psalmist is referring back to something that came before it. In this case, it's verse 1. And verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength. So the psalmist understands that the reason he does not fear is because God is his refuge. But the psalmist, I think, is saying more than that here. He's not just having some idealistic belief that there is a God that will protect him. There's, the psalmist knows something about that God, and that is why the psalmist can say, we will not fear. So what is it that the psalmist knows about God that gives him this confidence and gives him this strength that even though in the midst of a cataclysmic earthquake in his life, where the earth is literally giving away and the mountains are going into the sea, that he will choose not to fear. I think it's interesting that the psalmist uses the illustration of an earthquake here because earthquakes are a natural disaster that are really unlike any other natural disasters because they come on you without warning. They're not like hurricanes or tornadoes where in modern-day communication you know that the hurricanes are forming. You can kind of track it. You can kind of be prepared for it. Tornadoes, even though they may drop out of nowhere, you at least know the conditions, and there's kind of like an earthquake or a hurricane season or even a tornado season where the weather patterns are just right and you get notifications on your phone that there's a tornado warning, right? Or a tornado watch. You don't get that with earthquakes. And even though there's millions of dollars being spent in research at high institutions trying to give us some sort of early warning system for earthquakes, they have yet to happen. And when earthquakes happen, the tendency to, is to, that they are very short and they cause massive damage. And there's really no way to know that they're coming. And so, what can we do to prepare for the earthquakes so that we can say with the psalmist, I will not fear? What is it that the psalmist knows that he gives him the confidence that he can say in the midst of this cataclysmic earthquake that he will not fear? Back on January 17th, year was 1994 at 4.31 a.m., the largest earthquake hit to hit an urban area in North America occurred in Northridge, California. Registered about 6.7. If any of you lived through that, it was one of those things that you will never forget. Anybody from California that's lived through some earthquakes? A few of you. If you haven't experienced an earthquake, I definitely would recommend you put it on your bucket list. <laughs> but earthquake, this earthquake lasted about 10 to 20 seconds. At the end of that 20 seconds, 57 people were dead and it had created about $40 billion worth of property damage. Just came out of nowhere. And so, like earthquakes, trials come into our life, often without warning, and often, depending on how close we are to the earthquake and how prepared we are for it, it creates massive, massive damage in our lives. So, 
even though there's no way to predict earthquakes, no way to predict how much damage they're going to do, there are things you can do to prepare for it. In the sense of an earthquake, if you live in California, you strap your water heater to the wall. You strap your bookcases and any furniture you strap to the wall. People that come from out of state, they look at the straps against the wall holding your furniture. They think you're some kind of loon, but that's the way you live in, in, in California because you're used to earthquakes happening and they come out of nowhere. You can prepare by having extra food and extra water because when the earthquakes happen, you're not going to have electricity, you're not going to have gas, and you're probably not going to have water. So you need to be prepared for that. And so you can prepare for these happenings. And trials are a lot like earthquakes. And we can do things to prepare for them. So in trials and suffering that comes with those trials are going to come. We as Christians should understand that that is part of the Christian life. Nobody is immune from them. And when they come, they often test our faith to see whether or not our faith is genuine or whether it is going to fall away. But understand that I don't say this to scare people, but understand that if you haven't experienced trials yet and you're a believer, understand that they're coming. Your world is going to be rocked. And when it does, are you prepared so that when those trials come, you can say with the psalmist, I will not fear. So what is it that the psalmist knows about God that gives him that strength and that resolve? So what I want to do this morning is I just want to give you a guide, a pathway, if you will, to survive the trials that are coming, a way to keep the faith so that you will not stumble, and a way to honor God in the midst of that storm. First of all, why do trials come? God uses trials. They don't happen outside of God's control. So why do they come? Let me give you four ways to kind of think through that and four reasons. First off, sometimes trials come because God is chastening us. In Hebrews 12, 5 through 8, it says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So as much as we want to live our lives avoiding those trials, we should be wary of trying to avoid those trials because those trials are the paternity test that prove to us that God is our Father. Uh, Secondly, trials sometimes come into our life because they're, they're sent to refine us. In John 15, 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So sometimes God sends trials into our lives to make us better at what we do. Thirdly, sometimes trials come into our life so that we might have a testimony of the grace of God in our lives, and we can show that to others in our testimony. 1 Peter 2.15 says, For such is the will of God, that by doing what is right, you may silence the ignorance 
of foolish men. And that's in the greater context of Peter telling people that it is better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for doing what is wrong. Suffering will come. Trials will come. But the way you handle those trials can be a testimony to an unbelieving world as they watch the grace of God in your life and they realize that no man could, under, could withstand and endure the trials without some sort of divine intervention, and it's a testimony to God. Fourthly, sometimes trials happen and you don't know why, as in the case of Job. Job never understood, we know, but Job never understood why all the destructive trials that came into his life. And one day he lost all his children, he lost all his crops, lost his livelihood. And that all happened in one day. It just happened out of nowhere, and he wasn't expecting it. So trials come for all sorts of reasons, and they come in all shapes and sizes. Now, we can look at Ukraine right now, and we can certainly identify with them and understand that they are going through some severe trials that deal with life and death and all the things that come with war. But in our modern society, in our kind of, um, in, our, in our more pleasant society here in, in America, what do trials look like for us in the believer? Let me just give you a list of what trials potentially look like. After 35 years of marriage, your parents tell you that they're getting a divorce. In your 30s, you're diagnosed with MS. At 18, you're diagnosed with Lyme disease that cripples your once athletically gifted body, and now you suffer with chronic pain, depression, fear, and can't sleep through the night. At 50, your child is diagnosed with Lyme disease, and you realize that you will need to care for that child for the rest of your life. Your child is born with severe physical and mental deformities that will require your care for the rest of their natural life. Your wife is suddenly stricken with a disease that requires you to give up a solid career to take care of her. After 10 years of marriage, you come home to find your husband drunk, and he continues to get drunk every night for the next 12 years. Your fiancé gives back the ring a week before the wedding and tells you she never wants to see you again. Your pastor resigns after confessing a 14-year affair with his secretary. Your husband rejects the faith and becomes an atheist and walks away from his wife and kids. Your husband is arrested and charged with sexually molesting your children, a crime he later confesses to and goes to prison. Your children, whom you have sacrificed so much for and been diligent to raise in a solidly Christian home, walk away from the faith. You give up a comfortable job to take a new job, only to be abruptly and unfairly fired. At 45, your dad, who's a pastor, unexpectedly drops dead of a heart attack, leaving your mom and four siblings to care for your mother calls a family meeting to tell you she is really a man and wants a sex change operation. You are passed over for an unexpected and needed promotion at work. You're falsely accused and demoted at your place of employment. After marrying later in life, you experience two miscarriages and then a third child dies nine days after he is born. A healthy young mother dies of cancer, leaving her husband and four young children to care for. Your first child is born with a very rare medical disorder that requires multiple surgeries and lifelong care, and then your second child is born with severe autism one year later. You are diagnosed with cancer, again, for the third time, after beating it twice before. All of those are not, um, are not hypotheticals. All those are stories that I know personally, that have happened to people that I know or, or know through them of the different ministries that we've been involved with. Trials come, and they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So what do you do when those trials come?
so like I said, what I want to do today is I just want to give you kind of that quick start guide. I want to I want to I want to uh, give you some ways to think through how you how you approach trials, and not and uh, I know these aren't going to be this isn't going to be exhaustive. This isn't going to answer every question in the midst of those trials. But I do believe that what I'm going to give you today is a foundation that will what that will help you through every crisis that you might endure. So. What do we do? What is, what is the first thing you do? It's almost like an emergency operation plan if you work with a company. And what are you going to do in, in, a, with, in a certain shooters? You, you know what to do. This is the, what I want to give you is a plan to follow. And it's a three-step plan. The first plan, the first step in that plan is to simply pray. Cry out to God. And I would recommend praying the Psalms. In other words, you just start where you are. When you hear the news, when you hear that bad things are coming, the first thing you do is that you acknowledge the problem. You start with your hurt. You don't pretend that everything is okay. You don't try to be some super spiritual stoic and mouth some sort of glib saying that God is sovereign. Now, that is true, and you will get there, but at this point, that is sometimes not helpful. This is where the Psalms are helpful. They're honest and they're raw. And as we already, as Jordan mentioned this morning, we read one of the psalms that was the ascent psalms. There's all types of different psalms. Some are Zion psalms, some are, some are ascent psalms, some are praise psalms, some are imprecatory psalms, some are royal psalms. But the, the one psalm that there are more of than anything else in all of the psalms is lament psalms. There are 67 psalms out of 150 that are in part or in whole lament psalms. And David wrote most of them. And it's important to understand that David, when he writes these psalms, when he's praying these psalms, he's not complaining about God. He's complaining to God. And there's a distinction there, and a distinction that we need to be very careful that we don't cross over. We don't ever want to complain about God. God, why are you doing this to me? Instead, we want to complain to God, God, I am withering under the pressure of this trial. So let's look at a few of those psalms. And, I, and may I suggest that God is honored when we cry out to him? I used to think that the, the, the nature of being spiritually mature is that nothing bothered you. And then I started reading the psalms. And then we had trials that came into our life. And I began to feel things that I didn't think you were supposed to feel if you're a spiritually mature Christian. And then you look at the Psalms and you realize David, who is arguably one of the stoutest, bravest, mightiest men that you will encounter, and you read some of his prayers of lament to God, and then you begin to realize that it's not necessarily true that men don't cry, because David cries, and he cried a lot. In fact, sometimes it says he cried so much that he filled his bed with tears and he could swim in them. Let's just look at a couple of those, if you don't mind. Turn to uh, Psalm 3, real quickly. We're just going to go through a few of these very quickly. Psalm 3. Verse 1, David says, this is a, a psalm that David prayed when, or that David wrote when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. If you're familiar with that story, he says, verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. 
Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. How about Psalm 10? Verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of troubles? That's not a statement about the reality of God. That's a statement about David's heart that he feels, and many of us feel when you're in the midst of trials, you you want to wonder, where is God in all of this? And finally, go to Psalm 42. Starting with verse 3. He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? How about verse 9? Same, same psalm, Psalm 42. I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? And David cries out to God as step one. So I would, just, I would express to you and encourage you that when you're in the midst of trials, the first thing is not to be stoic, but to cry out to God and lament to God. Second step First one, cry out to God. Number two, preach truth to yourself. And I think this is the heart of what the psalmist is getting to in Psalm 46. He needs to preach truth to himself. That is what, is what, God, is what is the psalmist knows about God that gives him the strength, that gives him the resolve, that he can say, I will not fear. This is especially important when God doesn't seem to be responding quickly to our prayers and when he appears to be silent. So what are the truths that we need to preach to ourselves so that our faith stands tall, even in the midst of the earth falling away, and even in the midst where it doesn't feel like God is listening or God is even present? What is it that you need to know about God so that you will stand strong in the midst of the trial? I would suggest to you that there's three, and again, this isn't completely comprehensive. This is just the quick start guide, like I said, the emergency operations plan. This is what you go to in the midst of the catastrophe that's happening in your life, what is it that you're going to remind yourself that's true about God? Number one, there's three things. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. There is nothing beyond the control of God. And there's nothing beyond the control of God because not only is God in control of the circumstances that are happening to you, he planned the circumstances that are happening to you. 
and we'll find out later he planned them for your good. But what does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? Now, we could pull out a theology book, and we could probably look at the definition of God's sovereignty until it would make your eyes roll back in your head and you kind of want to beat your head against the wall. But let me give you just a very simple, and those are all true. I'm not meaning to make light of that. But those aren't always helpful to have a two-page definition of God's sovereignty in the midst of your struggles, right? There's an emergency happening. So what is, let me give you a very simple definition of what we mean when we say God is sovereign that I, would, that, I, that I would hope that you would memorize so that when trials come, the first thing you can go to is that God is sovereign. And that is this. When we say that God is sovereign, we simply mean this, that God is completely and actively in control of all things at all times. I'll say that again for you. When we say that God is sovereign, what we mean is that God is completely and actively in control of all things at all times. Turn with me to Genesis 50:20. If you're familiar with this, this is when Joseph is confronting his brothers. Their father, Jacob, has died, and his brothers are sure that he is going to now execute them for all the wrongs that they had done to him. And you're familiar with that story. He got sold into slavery, and then all sorts of bad things happened. Then he got sent into prison. And it would be very easy for uh, Joseph to be bitter and to blame them. But he says to them, as for you, Psalm 50, or Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that is a testimony of God's sovereignty that even in the midst of evil men doing their evil things, God is using that to work his good. So God is sovereign. Look at Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Another classic verse to remind us of the sovereignty of God. Verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God declares the end from the beginning and there is nothing that is going to thwart God's power and thwart God's plan of that happening. God is sovereign, and he's completely and actively in control of all things at all times. Now, the idea of God's sovereignty that can be very comforting can also be very scary. Because if you don't have an understanding of the second point of truth that you need to preach preach to yourself, is that God is not only sovereign, but God is good. And you have to have an understanding of what that means when God is good. We used to be part of a college Bible study in California. And uh, one day a young man showed up at our study, and he was from the country of India, and he was Hindu. He was Hindu. And the reason he came to our study is because as he was registering for classes, he was looking through all the different clubs that were on campus, and he came across one that said grace on campus. And he thought, grace, grace, grace is a good thing. I think I'll go to this study. And so he shows up, and in the course of us getting to know him and talking to him and finding out who he was and what he believed, he also understood that God was sovereign. 
He had an understanding that everything that happens was in God's control. What he was lacking was he did not understand that God is good. And so he believed that every evil thing that happens in the world brought glory to God. And God enjoyed the evil things that men did. Because he saw God as a capricious God. And one day God might send you a blessing. And other days God might send evil into your life where your infant son gets murdered by a robber. Or your missionaries that we just found out we have friends in, in uh, Peru, I think it is. And we just found out a few months ago the wife was at home and she was murdered by people who were coming in to steal things from their home. And you're like, how can that be? How can that bring glory to God? It doesn't. Why? Because God is good. And God, as we saw in 5020, uses the evil things in the world that men do for good. But sometimes it's hard to understand that God is good. What does it mean when we say that God is good? If you can turn to Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 18. This is where the rich young ruler has come to Jesus, and he says to him in verse 17, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't turn to him and say, Oh, I'm glad you recognize that I'm good, uh, and here's what you need to do. He, say, he says to him, Why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. What does it mean when God says that he is good? Understand this, God is not good because of what he does. God is good because of who he is, which therefore means that everything God does is by definition good. Let me, let me say that again. God is not good because of what he does. What he does is good because he, by nature, is good, and therefore he is only capable of doing good things, and he cannot do anything less. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. And look at verse 17. James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When you take this in combination with verse 2, which it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What this is essentially saying is God is incapable of giving anything to you that is not for your good and actually for your best. Everything that happens to you in life, no matter how cataclysmic, because God is sovereign and because God is good and because God is incapable of doing anything except what is for your best, everything that happens, everything that happens in your life is for your good because that's all that God can do. God is a good God. In the Old Testament, God's goodness is often, is, is often translated from the word hesed, which translated means loving kindness. That word is used, it translated 176 times in the Old Testament as God's loving kindness, and it's used 245 times in the Old Testament. The Bible is essentially shouting out to us that God is a good God. And it is defined by the nature and character of who God is. Because God is sovereign, he is only capable of giving us good and perfect gifts. So what are the truths that you need to preach to yourself? First of all, God is sovereign. Secondly, God is good. 
But that doesn't quite get us all the way there. There's a third thing that we need to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of, and that is that God loves me. We have a tendency to forget that in the midst of our trials. Um, and it's easy. In the Old Testament, you see that God, he says, I will never forsake you or never leave you. But it's, sometimes you begin to wonder, God, is that verse meant for me? Or is it just meant for me as part of a, a larger group? Was this, just, was this meant to the whole nation of Israel or was it meant to individuals? Was it, is it meant just for the church, and I'm part of the church, and so he loves and cares for me as part of the church, or does he love me separately, individually, independently? And if you look at Psalm 23, I know you're all very familiar with that, but take a look at Psalm 23 as we look through this real quick. I want you to notice how many times in this chapter David references either my, I, or me. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is significant about David's psalm here? What's significant about it is in, in, the, in the nation of Israel, the, the Israelites saw God as our God. He was a collective God. If you look at the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, the, the passage that every Israelite memorized from, from when they were old enough to talk, O Lord, our Lord, the Lord is one. The Lord is our God. And all through the Old Testament, the Israelites see God as our God. He is our God. But David here in Psalm 23 breaks away from that model, and he says that the Lord is my shepherd. It's individual. It's personalized. God loves me personally, separate from the collective. So what are the three things that you need to preach truth to yourself? One, that God is sovereign. God is good. And God loves me. Those are the three things that I think you need to build as a foundation in your life to, to prepare for when the trials come. Step number three. Step one was pray. Step two is preach truth to yourself. Step three I just have is pound the promises or embrace the promises. Have you ever gone tent camping in a storm? where it's raining and the wind is blowing and you're sitting comfortably in your storm or in your tent and all of a sudden the, the winds pick up and the rain is slashing down. And if your stakes aren't pounded into the ground very well, what happens? They come uprooting, right? Yeah? They come, they come out of the ground and all of a sudden you're in a big wet bag rolling around on the ground, right? Not very comforting. So when I say pound the promises, those stakes are the promises that God gives us in Scripture that we need to build are the stakes that we're going to drill into the ground so that, so that when those storms come and when the wind blows, our, our life is rooted in those stakes and they're not going to move because they're secure. What are some of those promises that we need to claim that hold our life together? 
someone we've already talked about. You're familiar with Romans 8.28 that talks about the sovereignty of God, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God, Genesis 50.20, we've already read that. Where what, God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What about Ecclesiastes 7.14? Turn, turn to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14. Something you should have highlighted in your, in your Bibles. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That's easy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Right? God is sovereign above everything that happens. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip a few of this. Romans 8.32, we already read that real quick, but go back to Romans 8.32. We read that this morning. But I want to show you, I want to focus in on something here. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him gracious how I'm sorry, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What based, what what Paul is saying here in Romans is he's already God has already done the hard thing. He's already sent his son to the cross so that he could give us all things. The easy thing is taking care of us. It's part of the promises. Let me just give you a few more. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. Isaiah 46, 10 through 11. We've already looked at that. Well, let me give you one more. Romans 4. This is, this is, this is amazing. Romans 4, verse 20. Talking about Abraham, who has been promised that he's going to have a son. And you know the story. He doesn't have a son until he's 100 years old, and Sarah is 90. And he says that basically they're dead. There's nothing going to happen at 100 years old. There's no way they're going to have children. But Paul says of Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He held on to the promises of God. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs. And finally, let me just end with this. When you're in the midst of a trial, everybody wants to give you advice. Everybody wants to tell you why it's happening and what you should do to avoid it. Can I just encourage you that don't listen to the voices that don't affirm the scriptures? Don't listen to people who do not fully affirm the scriptures. I know there's Christian psychologists, there's secular psychologists, there's integrationists, there's all sorts of people you can go to that are going to give you all sorts of kind of advice that maybe sounds partially true, but in many ways it's based on a secular foundation, and ultimately there is no hope for that. In, in, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 8, I'll just give you the cliff notes on this for sake of time. Isaiah goes to the king, and he tells the king that you need to trust in God. He's sent by God to the king to say, you need to trust in God. Basically, the king says, no, I'm not going to trust in God. I'm going to trust in all the things that I trust in. And some of that is to listen to the voices of the, the false prophets that are, in, that are in the 
that are in the area. I'm going to read real quick for you. I'm just going to read. I want you to see this. Oops, sorry. Isaiah got the wrong chapter. Real quick. Isaiah chapter 8. There we go. And when they say, verse 19, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Verse 20, To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. You understand what that's saying here? If, you, if your advice is not based in the word of God, it is like it is forever darkness and morning is never coming. There is no light. There is no hope. The only hope that you can find is in the word of God. If you've ever watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and in there is there's that, that line that said it's always winter, never Christmas, it's expressing the same thing. There's no hope. The darkness will never leave you unless you have the word of God, unless your life is built upon the, the truths of God and the promises of God, there is no hope. Darkness will never leave. The word of God is the only thing that gives us hope and gives us light. So you need to rest on those promises of God, especially when those trials hit your life like an earthquake out of nowhere. What are you going to anchor your life onto? Those are the, I hope that is, that is helpful for you. And, and just finally, let me re- once again, pray the Psalms. Or cry out to God, preach truth to yourself, and pound the promises. Those are the three things. And may I, rec- may I suggest to you it's the same thing Jesus did? Jesus was our example. He cried out to God. Psalm 22, he's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Hebrews 5, 7, it says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So he, he, he cried out to God. Secondly, he preached truth to himself. You remember in the, in the garden right before his arrest when Peter pulls out his sword and, and whacks off Malchus's ear? He turns to Peter and he says, do, not th- do, do you not think that I can appeal to my father? And at once call, and that he will send me more than 12 legions of angels? So he's reminding himself about the truths of God, and then he also pounded the promises. He he held on to the promises in, in same chapter, Matthew 26, 64. As he's standing before the Pharisees on his trial, and they say to him, if you're, if you're the Christ, then, then speak plainly. Say it so. He said, you have said it. And then he references something. He references Daniel 7, 13. Something that when Daniel said it hadn't happened yet, something that hasn't happened yet even at this point, Jesus is holding on to the promises that are in Scripture that God has given. He says to him, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. God is sovereign. God is good. And God loves you. And when the trials in your life come, if you haven't experienced them yet, they will come. But this is how you need to hold on to those promises and how you need to weather those storms in a way that honors God and supports and strengthens your faith. Let us, let us pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that are there. We thank you that you have called us out of an evil world to be your children. And with that comes the marks of being your, your child. So Lord, I would just pray that in the midst of the craziness that is going on in the world and the craziness that is all around us and just the chaos of what we see, whether it be wars in foreign countries or just 
a lack of understanding of people in our own country. Lord, I would pray that you would prepare us to be able to stand strong in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and that we would proclaim the truth of your word and not back away and not bow down from that and not be afraid to claim that you are our Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.